Matt Kibbe here, your host at Kibbe on Liberty. The building behind me is where the Mont Pelerin Society meeting is being held. This, of course, is a famous gathering of mostly Austrian economists founded by Frederick Hayek. It is also the place where, in 1944, the so-called Bretton Woods Agreement was hatched up by the infamous John Maynard Keynes and a guy named Harry Dexter White, who was a Treasury official under FDR, later discovered to be a Soviet spy. So you can imagine how this central plan to control our currency turned out in the long run. It was the death knell to the gold standard, and and it has created all sorts of chaos ever since. I'm going to be talking to some of the brightest brains here, not just about monetary policy, not just about the Bretton Woods Agreement, but where liberty was then, where it is today, and how we move forward. Check it out. Cheers. Cheers, my dear Matt. What a pleasure! Always a pleasure to see you. I was just, um, I was watching our last, uh, our last one of these, which was, was it just immediately after the lockdown or just before? It was in it a was, hotel it, room. It had to have been before. It must have been before. Yeah. It was. It was in a hotel room in Chicago. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I was watching. He's really good, this Kibby guy. He, I should, I should talk to him more often. He's like, he asks really. Is searching good questions. We we should yeah. we should figure out ways to yeah. collaborate because um, you know my my aspiration in life for free the people is to help explain things in common sense simple yeah. terms and and we're here at Mont Pelerin and there's all these there's big, not a lot of that going on there's a lot of big beautiful brains <laughs> yeah. but they're they're using their spreadsheets and spreadsheets I was and, just at a great talk I mean a really great talk on. What 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 is the impact of World Bank loans? But every slide was equations, right? You know, <laughs> and, and Greek letters, and you know, and I felt you know I, he was making a good point that there is you know the, the the leftist idea that the World Bank pushes you into neoliberal policies is demonstrably untrue. But if he if he just said that instead of leaving you to to, to interpret it from the Greek symbols, yeah. <laughs> it would have reached a lot more people. You know? There's, uh, I mean, I'm an Austrian economist by by instinct, and and our point, there's other points of Austrian economics, but one was to use the words, yeah, explain things in plain English um, instead of trying to imagine that that humans are just puzzle pieces yeah. that can be dropped into what equation and manipulated. What was that great line? I can't remember who it was. Um, mathematics brought rigor to economics. Unfortunately, it also brought mortis. Yeah. 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 So true. Um, speaking of scientism, um, you are from the UK. People might have already figured this out from your, from your accent. And you are now a member of the House of Lords. How did that happen? I was put there by Boris. Yeah. Well, I was put there by the late queen but on the advice of her first minister who at the time was Boris Johnson honestly it's, it's not a particularly defensible system uh, we're supposed to be half of the legislature we're one of the two chambers and yet we are appointed by the executive which is kind of you know given that we're supposed to hold the executive in check is not great uh, the one thing that it does have going for it which I would really recommend to other legislatures is you don't get a salary. You get some compensation for the days you turn up as recognition that you're taking time off work, but you're expected to carry on with a normal job. So it's a little bit like the Texas state legislature. You know, you, you, 
it's citizen legislators. Yeah. And I'd love to see that more widely applied. Yeah, I didn't know that. Like, we, we have the opposite system in the U.S. Senate where you become a politician with no money. Yeah. And somehow magically, well, you never retire. You die in office in your in your 90s, apparently. But but you die a very rich person. It's it's telling, actually, the, the, the gerontocratic side of U.S. politics has something to do with that reward structure, yeah. doesn't it, right? And... It cannot be healthy to have your politicians looking to the state for every rise in life. It's bound to affect how they think about government. So you have been an outspoken critic of, of lockdown. I'll call it lockdown authoritarianism. And you were one of the few voices that I, that I saw across the pond that were asking sort of obvious questions about whether or not this was really about human health and whether or not we were balancing costs and benefits and whether or not we were considering the collateral damage of, of these extreme policies. But I, I still struggle to understand why um, Donald Trump on our side and Boris Johnson on your side agreed to something that mm. was so contrary to any sort of policies or philosophies or, or, right. or things that Particularly they espoused. Particularly in Boris's case. I mean, I, I, I struggle to identify anything that I would dignify with the word philosophy behind Donald Trump, yeah. apart from maybe protectionism. I knew I had stepped in that one. But but Boris actually, I mean, and, and people, Boris's detractors say the same thing about him. He doesn't believe in anything, which is not true. The one thing he demonstrably does believe in and has done in every speech, every article, all his life, is not being pushed around. He hates the nanny state. There was a really famous occasion when he was asked, who's your hero in politics? Right. And you know what he said? It was great. He didn't say Thatcher or Churchill. He said, yeah, now, uh, you know, what was the name of the mayor in Jaws? You know, the chap who tried to keep the beach open, you know, because he didn't believe it was, it was a shark. He held out, held out against the, the health and safety uh, fanatics and admittedly got it wrong. <laughs> but in real life, what are the odds that there have actually been a shark? Right. Which, of course, is spot. Now, even he ends up going along with it. Now, the short answer is how could any politician go against the official advice? But that then just raises another question, which is why was the whole of the state's machine geared up for maximum overreaction? And I think the answer is it's structural. If you are a state bureaucracy, you are never going to say, you know what, probably not a big deal. Just relax and see how it goes. Because if you err in the side of excessive caution, you blow away gazillions of dollars and you overreact and you lock people up and so on, no one is ever going to criticize you for that. Better safe than sorry, right? You err one millimeter the other way and you're done. And that is that is true whether you're a politician or a health advisor. But the other factor here, and I, you know, I, I did speak to Boris a bit during the, the lockdowns and I've spoken to him a lot since. It, it's you, you could maybe hold out against the scientific uh, advisor panels and the medical establishment if you had public opinion on, on your side. But what we learned, terrifyingly, is how authoritarian our fellow countrymen are, in, in, in your country and in mine, and indeed everywhere. Right? When, when, the, when China locked down, I thought, thank God I live in a place where that couldn't happen. Boy, did I get that wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Fauci was explicitly pointing to the Chinese as, as this heroic solution to this problem. And, and the one thing, like Trump has no governing philosophy, but his first instinct, he sort of blurted it out as he blurts out anything, was, 
we can't lock down the economy. That's crazy. Right. And it was, of course, crazy, but we did it. And there was this clamor from all sides, and people still kind of don't want to admit that they were wrong. A few people have, I mean, over time, I think there's going to be a massive backdating of people's actual opinions, right? Yeah. So a little bit like the Iraq war, um, people now genuinely think they oppose the Iraq war when we know from all the opinion polls that it was massively popular, again, in your country and in mine, at the time of the invasion. Uh, everyone does this. You know, psychologists call it hindsight bias. All human beings struggle to imagine that they ever held a different opinion from their current opinion. And I think that will eventually happen with lockdowns, but we're not there yet. I mean, 93% of people backed the first lockdown in the UK. 93%. 85% backed the second lockdown. 70, I think 78% or 77% opposed the final lifting of restrictions when it happened. Boris was pushing through the liberalization in the teeth of public resistance yeah. and against all the medical advice. So one of the, the most colossal sort of unfairnesses of politics is that he ended up being brought down by all this when actually he was one of a handful of, of people, this all came out when they were leaking all the sort of WhatsApp messages, who'd been trying to resist it. Yeah. There's this, uh, and you were talking about incentives and, and sort of the, the bureaucracy, the, the, I call it the pandemic industrial complex. Right. Um, there's this fascinating article that I found after the fact. It's in Der Spiegel from 2009, I believe. And it, it, it was very much focused on pharmaceutical companies. And that, in that sense, they probably didn't get it exactly right. But it talked about this complex of interests, NGOs, pharmaceutical companies, governments, government agencies that were really itching for a big pandemic during swine flu. Right. And it geared up in all of the hysteria. And perhaps your friend from the Imperial College came up with some sort of scary number. He did. He literally did yeah. with swine flu, Neil Ferguson. So I I was, uh, I know how lonely it was. I was one of the people who was against the lockdown before it happened. And yeah. I wrote a piece in February uh, 2020 saying, do not do this, and specifically citing bird flu, swine flu, all of the other bogus uh, claims, and making this point that all the incentives were skewed, skewed for the politicians, skewed for the journalists, because who, who you know, it, I, I've worked under, I think, 11 editors as a columnist, and I've never known a single one of them say, Hannon, write a piece saying that we've slightly overblown the danger here. Right? <laughs> it's just not how a newspaper sells, right? So, uh, and so all, I could see that all the incentives were wrong. I. Honestly, I think I've had more, I've never had such hatred as I had during those early days. Yeah. Uh, you're killing my grandmother, you, you know. Um, being, a, being a Brexiteer or intervening on the Israel-Palestine thing or any other, I've never had so much abuse as when I was a, uh, an, a, an out-of-the-traps lockdown skeptic. But I have to say, given what we can now see, Everything that the other side was claiming has turned out to be baseless. And the, the proof of that is to look at the final, the final results. Do you remember that at the time, in, in March, April 2020, there was a lot of talk of wait until the final figures are in. Different countries measure this differently. Do you die of COVID or with COVID? Some countries can't even measure that. So my, my native Peru, right, which had the strictest lockdown and the worst uh, claims it was actually and the worst uh, numbers of, of, of COVID deaths the numbers are actually probably even worse now that we've seen the final excess mortality rates from Peru but they didn't have the capacity to measure who had COVID because they just didn't have that uh, uh, that capability 
So at the time, everyone said, wait until the final figures are in. Well, the final figures are now in, in the sense that we can look at the one figure that is consistent, methodology doesn't vary, across different countries. Excess mortality rate. How many people died in the last three years? How many people do you expect to die this year? Whether you do it just as an average of the last three years, or whether you tweak it for obesity or age or whatever, right? However you measure it, you find that if anything, there is an inverse correlation. There is certainly no correlation between stricter lockdowns and saving lives. The country that is at or close to the top of the list in terms of the highest survival rates is Sweden. Sweden, which everyone was vilifying at the time, including Donald Trump. They tried it in Sweden, didn't work. You know. But the really interesting thing, and this I just think is, is, is tragic. It almost makes me want to weep. Sweden, everybody got COVID no lockdown, very few restrictive measures. They banned some very large meetings, right? But basically they said, just use your common sense. At the other end of that scale, Australia and New Zealand, where there were almost zero COVID deaths, right? Because they were able, New Zealand particularly was able to cut itself off from the world because of its, its geographical position. Australia, likewise, was able to, to, to stop it, it coming in. They did have some very, very strict lockdowns, though, especially in the state of Victoria. Australia and New Zealand had a higher excess mortality rate than Sweden did, right? So just to be clear about this, country with, with where everyone gets COVID and there's no lockdown, one of the lowest excess mortality rates in the world, countries where there are almost no COVID deaths, but where there are lockdowns, worse excess mortality. I'm afraid there is only one way that you can interpret that data, which is the lockdowns killed more people than they saved. I don't see how else you can spin that. So all of this stuff we were getting about, you're putting the economy before human health, you know, why don't you care about people's lives? What, you know, the, the lockdowns, quite apart from cratering our economies, leaving this kind of smoking mess where our economies used to be, and the debt and all the rest of it, and the loss of liberty, failed fundamentally in their own terms because they, they far from saving lives, guess what? Who'd have thunk it? Locking a bunch of people up together had deleterious healthcare impacts. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Thinking of, and, and I think this is one of the reasons that we could have reasonably predicted exactly that because we understand basic economics, we understand trade-offs, and, and I'm thinking of that famous Thomas Sowell quote that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And you don't have to work very hard to, to Google the fact that the leading cause of death was never COVID, it was heart disease, exactly. it was cancer, it was a number of things that have spiked predictably. Yeah. Uh, drug abuse, drug overdose, suicide, like you know the list. And, and we could have reasonably expected these things to happen, yeah. not being uh, health officials, not being scientists. Just by applying normal basic understanding of, of human behavior, if you don't want yeah. to call it economics, right? Exactly right. I was, I was genuinely shaken by how few people were capable of doing that. I, I, look, I, I, I've, never, I've never been one of those people who thinks that libertarianism is other than a fringe position. I've always, I've always understood our numerical limitations, right? But 
But I was so taken aback by the number of people that the, the line that, that we kept on hearing over and over again, not, not from the far left, but from everybody, was you're putting the economy before lives, before human lives. And, and I was thinking, what, what do you think, what do you understand by that word economy? I mean, that's the word we give to the transactions that maximize our welfare, right? The, 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 the free uh, trades that people make to, to improve their, their happiness. And it, it came as a shock to me to, to learn that, you know, 80% or more of the population thinks of the economy as some machine that churns out gold ingots for the rich, right? Um, rather than, than being the... the uh, the, the, the word for people doing what makes them happier. And I'm afraid that we're now in a situation where that whole experience, the pandemic, the perceived common threat of the pandemic, and then the lockdowns has just made people far more authoritarian, far more statist, far more demanding of the smack of big government. And I don't see this changing in any hurry. Yeah, and and I, I can be sort of dark about the future because I knew the moment this started happening is like how do we go back from this new paradigm that is so wildly authoritarian they are building they have built camps in Australia with no sense of uh, sense of history whatsoever Um, and I I realized that the Achilles heel of of libertarianism classical liberalism um, small government conservatism whatever label we're, we're applying to this is fear exactly if, if they right. can find our Achilles heel and scare us we will throw all that away that is how government grows right through a series of wars and crises it's how we get how we get taxes how we get expansions of state power the state it's just like you know the the the, the British state expanded massively in 1940 and it turned out after 1945 that the government was in no hurry to return the powers that it had seized on a supposedly contingent basis and the worst of it was that the, the population didn't just put up with this, it was cheering it. So we had uh, we had identity cards until 1952, we had food rationing until 1954, we had full conscription until 1960. And when you look at the economics, the exchange controls and so on, the, the rest of the apparatus that was put in supposedly on an emergency basis in 1940, most of it was not repealed until the Thatcher reforms in the 1980s because people were demanding it. Not because people were sustaining it, but because people wanted it. Now, I can see that already, that same dynamic at work, especially in this country. Even if you look at the people who were the best during the lockdown, the people, the, the politicians who behaved best. So I, I will always have a special place in my heart for Ron DeSantis for having held out against the hysteria and kept Florida open, right? 10 out of 10, really, really admirable behavior. And uh, you know what, whatever now happens to him, that is always going to count in his yeah. uh, in his credit. But how extraordinary, in terms of the statism, that even he, during the and after the pandemic, was saying a private property owner may not require a face mark in his own shop or require a vaccine certificate. Like you know, I think we can come on to how crazy it was to require young people to have vaccines when they were at zero risk. But whether or not I think that, surely if you own a cafe or a what, it's up to you, right? Isn't that wasn't there a, a point pre-pandemic when it would have been taken as read by most Republicans that you begin from freedom and property? And the idea that even the most anti-lockdown ones are still weaponizing these culture war issues and mobilizing the full power of coercive power of the law yeah. to, 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 to win these culture wars, I just think that's, I'm afraid, that is a taste of the future. 
So I, I want to try to white pill you, and I'm hoping that you'll convince me of my own argument. Cheers. But the uh, the opposite take on this, and you know that I understand Robert Higgs' crisis and Leviathan, the state ratchets up every time we have a war, every time the government gets emergency powers. I think they're proving that again now. Conversely, freedom seems to get a foothold. The sense of liberty and and individual purpose seems to get a foothold when things get really bad and, and government so demonstrably fails. And I see this counter-revolution happening in the United States. Um, I'll cherry-pick data here, but uh, New Zealand apparently has completely wiped out um, Ardennes' um, progressive lockdown insanity mm. experiment, um, and and there may there may be hope there. Um, it it's it's perhaps noticeable that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson paid a price for this, but now I'm seeing other politicians who were on the other side um, start to to lose some hope. And you, maybe you saw this uh, on Bill Maher the other night. There was an NYU professor who was apparently like the, the, a lockdown fascist, like there's no mm. other word for it. He, he wanted to punish people for not complying with vaccine mandates and mass mandates and all that. And he's asking for a little bit of mercy because he now admits that he was wrong and he doesn't apologize for being wrong. He says we had per- imperfect information. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, if, I wonder if a lot of people who lost so much because of lockdowns. There were very much haves and have-nots. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they will rise up and hold people accountable. I mean, uh, from your lips to God's ears, I don't see it, though. Um, you're right, there were haves and have-nots. Uh, a friend of mine had a lovely phrase where she said, there wasn't a lockdown. There was professional people skulking at home while working-class people brought them things. Right? Yeah. And it would, it's a, definitely, there was a rural, The laptop urban, class. Right. Yeah. And there was a young old thing and there was a public sector private. I mean, the public sector in my country is just is never going to come back to the office. I mean, they've made that very brutally clear. There is, you know, um, as a result of which we are suffering from a kind of long lockdown in terms of absenteeism from work, in terms of uh, waiting lists for, for health procedures, uh, in, plus the weight of the debt. I mean, I just, don't even get me started on that. But OK, here's the thing. Even if people admit that the lockdown was wrong, even if they can finally bring themselves to say we had imperfect information and we, knowing what we now know, we wouldn't do it again, which is far from clear. But even if we get, even if we get that, I still think that the authoritarian mood is with us for a long time because of the changes in our brain chemistry wrought by the perceived collective threat. Psychologists have observed this, you know, for, for decades, that if you have an earthquake or a war or a plague or anything that, that, that is a, a threat, a communal threat, it makes, I mean, let, let, me, let, let me put it, put it in as, as balanced a way as possible. It brings out some good sides in people. It makes people care for their neighbors and so on. There was a, there's a great book by a guy called Sebastian Younger uh, called Tribe, and he, he interviews survivors of the siege of Sarajevo and 
they're all saying, look, there's something that we're all missing. We, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, we, we didn't like being shot at by snipers, but don't say we want the war back. But we had this sense of shared purpose. All the boys would go off to the front every day and the girls would get everything ready and run everything and then they'd come back and we'd party all night and there were, there were no strangers. We're, now, there was a little hint of that in the yeah. lockdown, right? I think we all, I mean, I live in a small village. It was definitely happening. But the flip side of that was the prissiness the censoriousness, the puritanism, the the sneaking on your neighbours if they were breaking some rule, the finger wagging, and the the kind of weird protectionism and the inward looking uh, wariness that you. I mean, I, I have a, a, a very sweet neighbour who is perfectly bright and in normal times very balanced, and she kept on saying, "All these outsiders are using our village shop." Right now, this is not something she would have said other than in lockdown. Yeah. I was, I was saying, where do you think the stuff in the shop comes from? <laughs> but th- th- I'm afraid that's and that the, that is what has moved the dial. And yes, it may come back a bit, but never to where it was before. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah, it's perhaps uh, poetic that we're gathering at the Mont Pelerin Society meeting. And I, I always used to use this to, to buck people up and convince them that it's not as bad as it can get because they they went to a mountain in Switzerland and they were hiding on all sides surrounded by by Marxists and fascists and communists and and everybody wanted to kill the the liberals and there was only a couple dozen of us at the time right but I'm well what's that line from King Lear the 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 worst is not come while well, we may yet say the worst is, is not come, right? I mean, um, almost literally. No, no. The, the, the day may come when this kind of uh, this kind of YouTube clip will be censored. But uh, yeah, the worst is not come. Yeah. Well, at least it'll live on X, if not right, if, if not on right. YouTube. And actually, by the way, that I think is the the one great hope because I, I I have I was a real. Matt Ridley, you know, Johan Norberg, Steven Pinker, rational optimist uh, until 2020. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't see how else you could read the data. Uh, the, the years since then have, have changed me. And I'm, I'm much more alarmed than I was by the thought that we may have just lived through a brief liberal interlude, like a, an interglacial, if you like, and that the last... 300 years were an aberration uh, and that the authoritarian style of government that we had for the previous 10,000 years will come back in one way or another and my my evidence for that is it's it it was already happening before the lockdowns right so Stephen Pinker's book uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist were both published in 2011 2011 is beginning to look like the peak year for freedom uh, the, the the trends that they reasonably extrapolated turned out not to continue. So there are there are various organisations that measure freedom and liberal democracy in the world, right? Um, 
the Economist Intelligence Unit, there's a thing called the, uh, the Ideas, there's a thing called the Democracy Index, the UN does one. And they all have slightly different methodologies. But they all show the same thing, which is that at some point between 2010 and 2015, what had been a seven-decade shift towards liberal democracy stalled and started to go into reverse. The lockdowns have massively accelerated it because we had to ask permission to do the most basic things. And I think the relationship between state and citizen has been permanently and malignly altered. And so I'm beginning to think in a rather sort of gloomy, sort of Spenglerian way that maybe uh, we're going to look back on the period that you and I grew up in as this brief moment of individualist sunshine. And, you know, we're, we're going to get used to being pushed around again. Yeah. So I, um, I'm again going to try to white pill you. Go on. In hopes that I am convinced myself. But I, I wrote several books at the time predicting in a very romantic way the democratization of knowledge and, the, and how technology was going to shift all the power to the end user. And, and I, I think all of that was true. And then the empire struck back. And thanks to Elon Musk, um, we now know the extent to which my government was wanting to censor the tweets of an average guy who said something like, do we really need to wear a mask mm -hmm. or is is lockdowns really the right thing to do? Um, they were so overwrought in their attempts to squash this, this democratic um, bottom-up platform. I think they're desperate. And yep. I, th I think that the same period that you're describing with Liberty and Retreat, it was very much... Um, uh, manipulated and orchestrated by all of the interests, vested interests, government interests, crony capitalist partners yes. of theirs, yes. and they're they're afraid that 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 freedom might in fact be something that people want. So I I see this this counter revolution happening, and I wonder if we can't take advantage of that, not because it's going to work, but because we don't have a better option. I mean, look, give, give me any, any of those white pills you've got going, right? I'll, I'll, I'll scoop up great double handfuls and guzzle them. But I mean, even in Canada, the country that you would think would be the most kind of, you know, squeamish about this, they were taking people's bank accounts away for saying the wrong thing. They used about to lockdown, be so right? nice. I mean, yeah. You know, it is. OK. My joke, by the way, is I do support a wall but I want it in the north and not right, the south. Right, Well, and actually, I, I, one of the few, here's my, here's my, my little bit of optimism. Um, I think the, the best center-right politician in the world right now is the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party. I think he would be very, very comfortable talking with the people of this Mont Pelerin society. And he, he has managed to turn like, you know, Austrian economics into a populist cause, which is, I mean, he is one hell of a communicator and, and a man of unbelievable energy and intelligence and principle. So he, there, there is one bright spark. But, I mean, l leave COVID to one side and just look at how standard it is now in, in this country for the losers immediately to go to law whenever there's an election result they don't want. How, how difficult, how much people are struggling with the idea that you should elevate process over outcome, that you should accept decisions that you, you don't like because that's the rules, right? Or because a majority has voted. Uh, the, 
I mean, as we're talking, we just got the news that Mike Pence has pulled out of the Republican nomination, right? Um, odd, in a way. There, you know, successful governor, uh, vice president. I mean, okay, not 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 everyone's cup of tea, very religious and all that. But in in normal times, he would have had a chunk of of support, and he'd have certainly been regarded as mainstream. He was struggling to get above three percent. Why? I would love to say because he went along with Trump for as long as he did with all the abuses of all the normal norms and, and guardrails. But of course, we all know the answer is that it's because he stu stuck to his you know, oath of office and defended the Constitution. Now, there comes a point, I, I really hate to say this, Madden, please don't, please don't think that I'm saying this in, in any carping spirit. I say this from the bottom of my heart as a friend of America and a friend of American democracy. And as somebody who, for most of my adult life, has felt much more affinity with the Republican Party than with my own British Conservative Party. But when I look at these Republican debates, I'm left with the conclusion that we don't have a party problem. You could fix a party problem. We have an electorate problem. If you cannot get elected now without going along with something that you know to be untrue, namely that the whole election was rigged, that is, a, that is an electorate problem. Now, was it caused by, you know, multiplicity of media? Was it caused by people spending those two years of lockdown looking at their screens too much? Was it caused by the great segregation of population of Republicans and Democrats? I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it, you know, it, I have a horrible feeling that this may just be what the rest of the world is heading towards. Uh, you know, the identity politics, the racial animosities, the, the absolute refusal to, to compromise on politics. And an open society can't sustain that, not for very long. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah, we were uh, with another guest I was just talking about, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, about, yeah. about this, this dilemma of national conservatism, which by any understanding of the word conservatism that I right. have grown accustomed to, it's a contradiction in terms because they're basically socialists who have different end goals for using the power of government. Yeah. So, well, I mean, maybe conservatism in like a Russian sense or something. Yeah. They, would, they would understand it. But uh, yes, I mean, for most of my life, the attacks on freedom and free markets came from the left. And the, the main argument was something like these <clears throat> neoliberal policies of yours are good for the rich and for the developed world, but they are bad for the have-nots. Now, that, that was so clearly you know, defeated by the data, it, 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 was not, it was not compatible with what people could see. And so you had the kind of, the, the, the left generally went through its kind of bono moment of saying, hey, you know what, free trade and globalization is a pretty good poverty alleviation mechanism. Now the attack is coming overwhelmingly from the right, from people saying, yeah, maybe good for these poor people, but what about, you know, what about uh, us in the, in the developed world? Um, and of course, it's, it's equally false, right? The, the globalization has been incredibly good news uh, for, for this country, incredibly good news. I, I went, during the, the Trump term, I used, to, I used to watch his Twitter feed 
oscillating between they're laughing at us on trade, we've got to reshore, and look at these jobs figures, best economy ever. Like, only one of those can be true, and it was the second one. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk. Let's now that we've really depressed everybody. Let's talk about things that are even more controversial. Yeah, right. Um, I'm going to need a drink before. This. Currently, yeah, you'll need a drink. Um, currently, we we were debating whether or not to spend more money in Ukraine. The United mm. States has spent hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of billions of dollars. Is that right? No. no. What's what's the number? Yeah, definitely not hundreds of billions. I mean, the, the, the allegation is 40, 40 billion in, in defense. But honestly, I I mean, I don't I don't want to I don't want to be all neocon warmonger here. But the way you get to those big numbers is by t- by costing every crappy old nineteen sixties armored personnel carrier at the price of the new Bradley that you were going to replace it with anyway, right? So the, the cost argument here, I just don't buy. The, yeah. I mean, the, I, I, get, I get the argument of principled non-interventionism. Fine. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's a bit tricky when the US was a guarantor of, of the Ukrainian independence in, in exchange for giving up their nuclear weapons. But I, I get, I totally get the people who say, look, I can't stand Putin, but wake me up when he gets to Portland, Oregon. It's a, it's a consistent position. Um, but pretending that this is all about the money, I mean, you know, a, a U.S. general who can degrade, significantly degrade the military of one of the two main challengers to the U.S., one of the two main unfriendly powers for 40 billion without a single U.S. life being a risk. That's a hell of a victory, right? So what um, uh, what do you think? is going to happen in Ukraine. And I, and I want to talk about something even more controversial, uh, so, Israel. So, I mean, all right, I, 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 I'm, not any, I'm, not a, I'm not a big enthusiast for, for engaging in wars. I was an opponent of the Iraq war. I, was, I, I, I got the argument for going in for two weeks uh, to get rid of Mullah Omar and, and to go after al-Qaeda. But after that, there was no excuse for extending our mission. So I, I'm not a, a big supporter. I think... I think Ukraine is a slightly different situation because in 1994 they were persuaded to surrender all of their nuclear arsenal in exchange for a promise that their independence within their existing borders would be guaranteed by the US, the UK, and never forget Russia. Right. So for Russia then to turn around and invade them after they've given up all those weapons is an act of stunning uh, treachery, and it's quite difficult for us just to be indifferent. We, I don't think we can be neutral. Um, what what's likely to happen? I mean, I think it just comes down to can Ukraine break through to the Sea of Azov brutally before the election of a Republican administration here, if that happens, right? So, if the Ukrainians can reach the sea, which is possible at the moment, it's not going brilliantly, but it, you know we've got another fourteen months or whatever. Uh, then I think that it's that opens a door to a, a peace because at that point. Crimea can't be resupplied across the Kerch Straits. Uh, so Ukraine would have effectively kettled the entire Russian garrison in Crimea between one and 200,000 people. Uh, Ukraine would effectively be in a position to say, if you want to see these guys again, we do a deal. And I think that would be an end to the war. How amazing, Matt. I, again, I, my, my, if, I, if I traveled back in time and told my younger self of even 10 years ago that a Russian autocrat was basing his hopes for victory in an aggressive war on the election of a Republican administration. My younger self would have struggled to believe it, right? But I, but that is obviously now Putin's strategy. It's to wait until Trump or uh, or someone of similar views 
takes over and pulls the plug. So what about Israel? There is no silver lining about any of this. Every aspect of the, the, the war there is, is ghastly. Uh, what's happened to Israel is unspeakable. What's happening to people in Gaza, to civilians, is unspeakable. And I really fear that there will be a spillover into other countries in terms of breakdown of community relations. Uh, suppose, I mean, you know, suppose, for example, we've, ha we've had massive marches every Saturday in London. And, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, a lot of people on those marches are just concerned about civilian casualties in Gaza. Absolutely fine. In fact, honestly, given what's happening in Gaza, there'd be something wrong with you if you were not concerned about it. If, if, if there'd be something inhuman about not, not caring about that. So fine. But there's also lots of people on there saying the Israelis had this coming. They created the situation. What is going to happen? And pray God this doesn't happen. But what would happen if there's a terrorist attack in the UK? Somebody drives a car into a crowded place and you immediately then start hearing on the media that argument ah oh, well this is all Britain's fault for having backed Israel we've actually until now been incredibly good at getting people to get on wherever their grandparents were born it, it's something something we've been quite reticent about congratulating ourselves on but we've actually done it really a lot better than a lot of other countries until now and this really, really scares me. My gut tells me, going back full circle to the beginning of this conversation, um, Terry, my wife, and I were traveling um, the day that, or the week that Trump decided to lock down and, mm -hmm. and Boris decided to lock down. And the first thing we did when we got home is I went to Home Depot and I bought sheets of plywood to nail on my bay window. We live in Washington, D.C., right by the Capitol. Yeah. And I had no anticipation, knowledge of BLM riots or January 6th riots or whatever it was going to be. But what I said to Terry was, you can't lock down a world and not expect it to explode at some point. And I wonder if all of this unrest, I mean, I realize that this cannot be the only reason, but I wonder if we've created this, this radical uh, hot box yeah. that might just catch fire. It's a, it's a really good observation. Um, I would have done the same, except that I live in a small village. And anyway, if I tell Sounds you like that, your neighbors uh, are nicer if, than mine. If I tell you that the last time I tried to hammer in a nail, I succeeded in hitting not my thumb, but my face. You'll see, you'll see that I'm not the best guy to start hammering plywood. But, uh, you know, I was, by chance, just before the lockdown, I'd been reading a book by a brilliant historian called Tom Holland, popular historian, really, really smart guy, does a fantastic history podcast. And it was a sort of history of, I suppose, a intellectual history of Christianity uh, called Dominion. And one of the repeated themes in that is that whenever there was a plague, there'd be a bout of statue smashing. You know, hmm. the, 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 the iconoclasm followed the plague. It was like people needed to cleanse something, right? Interesting. So... You know, you and I didn't see the BLM thing coming specifically, but maybe it wasn't surprising that we had something of that kind. And yeah, yet another malign uh, thing to chalk up to the impact of the lockdowns. So we, we are um, at least two people in the remnant who are not going to give up on, on liberty and human dignity. Um, 
take a moment to shamelessly flack projects that you're working on. Like, like what's what are the things that you're interested in doing right now? A lot of things. I mean, one of the things that is still in a very slow way getting a bit better is that Britain outside the European Union is adopting a more liberal attitude to trade. And that is hugely countercyclical at the moment. Uh, the world is not going in a good direction on trade, um, however you measure it, and the US particularly. Um, but we've just joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is great. Um, in fact, by joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we, we've almost certainly tipped it into being the biggest trade nexus in the world rather than the EU. Um, it would be great if you guys came in. It's, it's, it was invented by the US. It's not a perfect deal, but it's much better than not being in. Uh, we're about to do a deal with India, um, touch wood, which would be fantastic, particularly fantastic for India. It would be the, the most ambitious one they've done. So there's that. I think we need to. Um, I think we need to work. We it, it, it's, a, it's a more immediate issue in my country than in yours, but we need to uncover and celebrate the free market and libertarian tradition in Islam. One of the reasons why we have these community tensions is there is this facile view, particularly in Arab countries, but in the in the wider Islamic world as well, that. Private, private property and stock exchanges and commerce is somehow a kind of colonial imposition, which is just the opposite of the truth. I mean, Islam was a great merchant civilization long before Europe was. Um, you know, if there's any colonial imposition on the Arab world, it's Nasserism, Baathism, Arab socialism, right? Um, but this is a story that people don't know. And if people knew it better, especially Western-born Muslims, I think it would be, it would be great. So one of my favorite stories, um, which any, any Muslim viewers will know, but it will be somewhere buried at the back of their mind because it isn't very much spoken of. When the Prophet was in Medina during the exile, there was a famine. It happened often in, in those times. And so the prices went up. And a delegation went to him and said, Prophet, you have to tell the market traders to cut their prices. Right? He was a businessman. Like the whole of his life, he had been a trader. So he understood what happens if you have artificial price fixing. Right? What happens if you, if you artificially set the price of something too low, people stop bothering to bring it to market, you end up with the worst problem that you, you began with. Right? So what does he say? He sends the delegation away and he says, prices are in the hands of God. Right? So this is like, you know, whatever, 1,200 years before Adam Smith, right? Going back to the lockdown, how many times did we hear the argument, oh, it's terrible the way people are profiteering with hand sanitizer or face masks. Why can't they, you know, why can't we set the prices? Right, because... Ply plywood. Right, yeah. the plywood, right. Or why can't we give the vaccine away? People had not internalized the point that the profit was, uh, was making, you know, 1,400 years ago. So um, uncovering that tradition and teaching teenage kids of, of Muslim origin, that tradition, or, or be, that's, that's a real, that's my, that's my new uh, current obsession, because I, you know, we, we, we well, you were quoting the great Thomas Sowell before, and one of my favorite, in a crowded field of great Thomas Sowell observations is where he said, uh, you can't, operate a free society on the basis that two babies born on the same day arrive in this world with a set of pre-existing grievances against each other. That is equally true if you if you think of sectarian differences. And uh, we, we have to have a 
basic understanding that elevating the individual above the collective is how we run our societies. I, I would love your counsel on that because one of my projects, and it's probably a hopeless project that will very much upset my viewers, but I would love to find these common sense human values. I would call them libertarian values. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Keep your promises. Whatever those are, um, these are not unique to one faith or one creed. And I would love to find someone, uh, a classical liberal, who, yeah. is, who is Muslim. And I, I've, I've met these folks at, at the Atlas Network and, and otherwhere, and I've, I'd love to have that conversation. I mean, it, it, obviously you find individuals, but I mean, that, literally that was the prophet's last yeah. sermon. His lit, almost his last words on the, on the earth were, your lives and your property is sacred. Or as you've just put it, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. And the, the, the essence of, I mean, libertarianism is such a charged word, but, but of, of uh, a society that values the individual is simply extending that principle, isn't it, right? So all of us in our own lives, I hope, try and yeah. apply the principle of don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, right? When I was an elected politician, that shouldn't have given me a special pass that allowed me to break those rules. Basically, that's all we're arguing, right? The, the fact that you happen to be a, 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 to call yourself the government, even if you're a democratic government, shouldn't mean that you can coerce or expropriate people, right? All, all we're arguing for is an extension of basic morality, and that, mm -hmm. that should be universal. Okay, thank you. And we will uh, convene downstairs at the bar, I hope. Great stuff. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Matt. Yeah. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.